Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. Once Every Two Weeks is brought to you by Linville's Dry Shampoo. When you need to keep your dew on the move, Linville's enables you to go a full two weeks between wet washings with no muss, no fuss, and no grimy residue. Linville's, it's the driest. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. Hey, Thomas. How are you? I'm well. How are you today? I am well as well. I'm actually pretty exhausted today. I'm not going to lie. Why is that? I did my first field trip chaperone with 60 first graders to the zoo. As much as I did not enjoy it, I will never let my daughter go on a field trip where I am not present. Okay. Also, zoos are sad, man. Have you been to the zoo as an adult? I have. I find the zoo also makes the difference. Small town zoos are usually more sad. So I can see Tulsa being depressing. I've been back to the Houston Zoo like a year or two ago with nieces and nephews down there, and they still have pretty large enclosures for everything. Most of the stuff is really nice, large enclosures, but the macaws were in this really cramped little cage, and I just thought for birds that fly through the rainforest, this is sad. Hmm. In elementary school, my class adopted a giraffe at the Houston Zoo. Oh, wow. I know. His name was Hilo. Okay. When I went with my family down to Houston, we got there right as like a thunderstorm was starting or just a downpour. And so like we're in the parking lot and just got soaked walking up to the gates. Yeah. And everybody's huddled around the gates and the gift shop and waiting for the rain to die down. And we're like, we're already soaked. Let's just go. <laughs> so you kind of had the zoo to yourself? We did for like a good like 45 minutes and it was wonderful. And we go to the elephant enclosure and they had this new young elephant and he was out in the rain playing in the mud. That's awesome. Yeah. Kind of a, an aspect to it that you don't usually get to experience. We never went to the zoo together. No, because you never joined the environmental club when the rest of us went and then <laughs> got in trouble. <laughs> What'd y'all do? I joined Environmental Club like two weeks before the zoo trip was happening. <laughs> Sarah Nosh and Stacy and a few other people were in the club. And they're like, hey, there's a zoo trip coming up. And the sponsor of the Mom Club also taught biology too. And so they were going for a class field trip and the Environmental Club got to tag along. And so on the bus ride there, they tell us we're expected to do the same work for the day that the people that are there as students of the class are supposed to do. And they try to break us off into little groups with different members from the class. And we're like, screw this. And as soon as we got through the gates, we all just ran to the far end of the zoo and then spent the next few hours just actively keeping an eye out to avoid the chaperones, the instructor. And of course, we all had to get back on the bus together to ride home and we all got in trouble. And then I promptly quit the environmental club. (laughs) Well, that's unfortunate. We never did get to go to the zoo together in high school. But you know what we did get to do in high school? What's that? Listen to Sunny Day Real Estate. That we did. And we did it a lot. We did. Now, before we jump into tonight's episode, which is looking at The Rising Tide, the fourth album from Sunny Day Real Estate. Is there anything that we need to address from prior episodes? I know that this is the first episode that we're recording since we've finally launched, which is exciting. It is exciting. 
we have been getting some positive feedback and I appreciate that. So thank you everyone who has been listening. Yes. Both of you. Yes. Tom's mom and Tom's mom's dog. Thank you. It's really funny that you think my mom would listen to one of my podcasts. Your mom doesn't love Christmas. She doesn't listen to my podcast. Why does Karen hate Christmas? She says she listens to it, but then anytime I make a reference or mention something about it, she doesn't know. And then when she does start, you know, I think she might be pretending to know. I make up some fake stuff to throw out there. (laughs) So you're actively trying to catch her mom in a trap. Yeah, no, none of my family listens to, to any of my podcasts. My wife doesn't listen to my podcasts. Oh. You wouldn't expect that either, would you? No, no, not really. My family actually does. I got a text a few weeks ago from my dad asking if I'd posted the second episode. I don't think he's listened to the third one yet because I haven't heard any response to the whole thing about him and Madonna. <laughs> But I was over at my brother's house the other day, and my nine-year-old nephew, he let me know that he really, really liked the podcast, or at least the little bit that he heard while riding in the car with his dad. He admitted that he didn't understand anything that we were saying, but he still said he thought it was good. Aw, that's a kind nephew. So, yeah, at least Lincoln likes it. Do one of your brothers or two of them listen? I don't know if James does. Hi, John. He had very kind things to say after the first episode, and then I got a text from him about the second episode that read, I'm listening to episode two of your podcast, and I'm really annoyed that Tom keeps pronouncing Dulcinea incorrectly. (laughs) At least I think the correct way to say it is Dulcinea instead of Dulcina. I didn't actually ask him because it was a text message, but it was funny timing because later in that day, I came across a meme that a friend had posted that said something along the lines of there should be a hotline you can call where you can, in a safe space, pronounce words that you've only ever read out loud for the first time. So they can be like, oh, sweetie, and kindly explain how to pronounce it correctly. You know, I've always said you shouldn't make fun of people for mispronouncing words because at least you know that they're reading. Sorry, brother, that Tom kept mispronouncing words. But at the same time, also, to an extent, screw that because it's our God-given right as Americans to say things however the heck we want to say them. Dulcinea. Yeah. Okay, so we apologize, John, for mispronouncing Dulcinea. But strap in because we're going to mispronounce everything else moving forward. I don't think there's anything to mispronounce on this album. We'll find out. And if there is, it's not like we're going to care anyway. We're just going to say it however the heck we want. America. So So Rising Tide. Rising Tide. Fourth album. Mm -hmm. This was dropped our... Actually, the summer after our senior year. Summer after our senior year. Close Um, enough to the 90s. Close enough to high school. I know we claim that this is a 90s retrospective, but Sunny Day was such a big portion of our high school experience. And so we chose this one specifically kind of for the same reason that we chose last episode with Secret Samadhi, how we were doing Secret Samadhi, because that was the album that dropped during our time. It wasn't something that we just inherited or grew into. And so, right. Well, technically, yes, this isn't 90s album. It's an important 90s band that had music from our high school experience. And that's all that we really care about. Well, how it feels to be on something did drop. It did drop our sophomore Sophomore year, but I don't think at that point either of us were fully into the band yet. No, I'd say that we got much more into it shortly thereafter, fell in love with Diary, but we weren't excited about the drop. We say fell in love with Diary. We fell in love with Diarrhea. Did I I mispronounce that, John? (laughs) Uh... So yes, this was 
It's their fourth full-length studio album. It was released June 20th of 2000, so the summer after we graduated. So I am curious, a lot of the Weezer albums have been titled based on the color of the album. You have Blue Album, Mm -hmm. Green Album, White Album. But Pinkerton came out and was called Pinkerton, not the Pink Album. And I wonder if it's because Sunny Day Real Estate the year before had taken the Pink Album name. That's an interesting question. I suppose you're just going to have to call Rivers up and ask him or have Christine call Rivers up, her old pal, and see if she can get that for us. Although, technically, the second Sunny Day is officially titled LP2. Yes. They just couldn't be bothered coming up with album art because at that point they were over being a band and they knew they were breaking up. And they knew they were breaking up before they even went to the studios. And we'll touch on this more a little bit further in. But what is your personal history with Sunny Day Real Estate? I had been into a lot of grunge and some 80s stuff, just remnants from having a young mom who listened to cool music. Mm Mm-hmm. But the first real foray into non-mainstream music came from a friend we had in high school who introed me to the whole emo scene, Jacob. And he'd given some some burned CDs with different songs on it. And I think In Circles was on there, but I know some Sunny Day was, some Jimmy, Newfound Glory. Newfound Glory or No Effects? Newfound Glory. Because I know Jacob was really into No Effects. Cause... Jacob was really into No Effects, but it had hit or miss on it. Okay. I just don't want to misrepresent Jacob because I love Jacob and I don't care for Newfound Glory at all. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to make sure I'm doing him justice. That really got me interested in the world of emo. And then from there, I know you and I were both into Sunny Day as well as other things. But Diary became heavy rotation in our cars and in our hearts. Yep. I didn't spend nearly as much of my budget on music as you did, but I did buy that album. Right. I know there were some things that Jacob also introduced me to. He'd made three or four tapes of No Effects albums because he was really into No Effects. Because yeah. we talked about all the punk stuff that you know we were listening to, and he was like, "Wait, you don't know No Effects?" Because Peter didn't have the newer stuff at that point. That was too new for Pete, huh? Yeah, he wasn't really into the newer skate punk stuff, and so Jacob got me into No Effects. But I can't remember if Sunny Day is attributed to him or just the fact that I was spending all of my free time and money at the CD store. And if it was just one of those things where the cover of Diary is such an iconic image, if that was one that I broke down and picked up myself. Because I used to buy things just because I liked the artwork and because it was on Sub Pop. Before the internet let you browse things, it'd be one of those things where I was like, okay, this art looks interesting. These song titles sound interesting. And then you check the label. And if it was a label that I trusted, like Sub Pop or Touch and Go, Merge, one of those, I would just buy the album because I knew it was going to be good. For those of you not familiar, it's an album with, what what were those, like the Fisher-Price Little People yes. in a kitchen with a toaster burning? Yep. And when I say album, I mean album as a collection of songs. I used to get into that argument a lot when I worked at the music store, worked at City Warehouse for a few years. I would call CDs albums, and a lot of people like to get on their high horse and be like, oh, it's a CD, it's not vinyl, so you can't call it an album. An album's just a collection of something, so shut up. (laughs) Anyway, we are getting way off topic already. Yay! Like you said, this was their fourth album, June 2000, a simpler time. June 20th, 2000, which was a Tuesday because that's the day music dropped, much like our podcast drop date now. Indeed. Rising Tide peaked at number 97 on the Billboard 200, and it was released by Time Bomb, which was yeah. a move for them away from Sub Pop. 
Sunny Day had completed their contract with Sub Pop and decided to leave Sub Pop and go elsewhere. One of the articles that I think we're both going to reference was the 20th anniversary review from Stereo Gum, mm-hmm. which had a lot of really good insights into it. And one of them that they made, I'm just going to read this here, says indie fans in 2020 probably can't fathom how switching from Sub Pop to something called Time Bomb Recording might have given Sunny Day Real Estate a bigger platform. And it's true. Absolutely. Anyone who's familiar with Sub Pop now, it seems like Sub Pop has pretty much become as big, as wide-reaching, as respectable as any of the major labels. But that wasn't always the case. At the time, Sunny Day butted heads a lot with Sub Pop as a label, and Sub Pop also didn't even want to let them out of their contract when they fulfilled it. But do you know who else was on Time Bomb? I don't. I was going to go into who was... Well, I do, but I was going to go into who was and is on Sub Pop just for reference. Okay. Back in the day, Sub Pop had bands. It had early Nirvana, Mudhoney, Soundgarden was there. And then as they grew, they've had some bigger names that we all know, like the Postal Service, Beach House, The Shins have all been on there. So it is something you would have expected to be a much bigger play than Time Bomb or whatever. But... Time Bomb had big bands back in the day. Social D was on there, who we covered a couple weeks ago. Social D, no doubt, and a bunch of other... I don't know if it was the Stereogum, but another one mentioned that it was odd that Sunny Day made the switch to Time Bomb because Time Bomb was located in Orange County and they represented all of the big California bands except for Chili Peppers. Right. And at the time, Sunny Day refused to even tour in California. Yeah, that was weird. This was their second studio album after their initial breakup in 95, but it was their third release since they reunited in 97 because Sub Pop put out a live album, which all the members of Sunny Day encourage people to not support because they think it sounds like garbage. That's weird. I didn't hear any Shirley Manson in it at all. (laughs) Why'd they break up the first time, Mark? As a band, they were never one that was super open to the press. So all of the talk about the why of the breakup is just speculation and hearsay. I mean, even the band members in the years since, as they've done more interviews and talked about it, they're like, oh, there were a lot of like internal conflict and reasons, but there's not like one specific thing given. People like to cite that singer Jeremy Enoch had converted to Christianity, but that's something that the other members in interview since have kind of just brushed off. I mean, I know that Christian ideas and rock music has never been a popular thing, so it's an easy scapegoat. It is. I think the recruitment to Foo Fighters, and I could be wrong, I read it that that's part of the reason they broke up was because they got recruited to go play for Foo Fighters, and that was something they jumped on. I don't think that they were seriously approached until the band itself was already on the rocks and pretty much already knew that they were disbanding. Okay. But I, I guess before we get too far into it, we should mention that the members of Sunny Day Real Estate are Jeremy Enoch, who is the vocalist and guitar player. Dan Horner was guitarist as well. William Goldsmith was the drummer. And Nate Mendel was the bass player. Like we said, they had that breakup in 95. In 97, they reunited, but they reunited without Nate at that point. In that downtime between the breakup and the reunion, like you said, William and Nate both were recruited by Dave Grohl to join his new garage band, Foo Fighters. But William didn't last with Foo Fighters and Nate stuck around longer. William, as a drummer, naturally butted head with Dave Grohl's drummer sensibilities. And Dave did some things like re-recording all of his parts without telling him. 
So, yeah, there was <laughs> some immediate beef there that I think William is still kind of salty about to this day. Nate saw that Foo Fighters was doing well, so he decided to not bother with the reunion and decided that if he was going to be in a band with conflict, it was at least one that was going to get him paid. And he's still with Foo Fighters. He is. He did come back to play with Sunny Day for their late aughts reunion, but he is not on the current tour. Yep. Their third album, How It Feels to Be Something On, was the first studio record they made after reuniting. Mm -hmm. And they had somebody else play bass for that, and they had somebody else tour with them for that. And when it came time to make this record, they just decided that they were going to not bother finding a fourth member. There's a 2000 interview that Dan Horner gave that addresses this. He said, we tried to find a fourth member during How It Feels to Be Something On, but it just didn't work. No one can fill Nate's shoes. With this record, I seriously believe that we'll never have a bass player unless it's Nate or Jeremy doing the tracks. Um, Because on this one, Jeremy, in addition to vocals and guitar and all of the piano and keys, he also played the majority of the bass parts. I kind of like them as a three-piece. I like the simplicity. Yeah, it's... It's interesting. And in that same interview, Dan talks about how it felt like going back to the early days, because when they were writing Diary, Nate had another band that he was playing in, Prefu Fighters, and he had some obligations with that band. So a lot of Diary was written as just the three of them. And so he's like, for this album, it was kind of nice to go back and have that old school feel of the three of us in the basement jamming. Going along with that, since Jeremy was pulling extra bass duty Dan picked up the slack by taking on a greater responsibility of writing lyrics, which was, again, another kind of return to writing Diary because Jeremy was not an original member of Sunny Day. It was the other guys without him, and then they added him, and he proved to be such a dynamic and incredible vocalist that Dan stepped down as singer and let Jeremy take over, but the two of them have always kind of... Shared that lyric? Yeah, shared lyric duty. They do such a good job of writing. Their lyrics work really well together and fit a cohesive sound. It's not like other bands where you can definitely tell one person's writing compared to the other, right? Mm -hmm. Stylistically, it just sounds like one narrative voice. I'm going to use Jimmy Eat World as an example. A lot of the stuff where Tom is writing the lyrics, it sounds different. It's got a different vibe. They're they're pulling different themes. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas Sunny Day is always Sunny Day. It's not Jeremy versus Dan Sunny Day. It's always just Sunny Day. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll discuss individual lyrics more as we go through the album. Yep. But Rising Tide was produced by Lou. And here you go with your... Oh, there is nothing that we're going to mispronounce here. How do you say Lou's last name? Giordano. Giordano. Sure. Sounds good to me. Lou Giordano produced The Rising Tide. He also acted as engineer and was assisted by Sue Kappa. Lou had also produced and or engineered albums from... Husker Du, Mark's Favorite, The Lemonheads, Mission of Burma, Yola Tango, Smithereen, Sam I Am, Guided by Voices. He was the engineer for Lies Throwing Copper, and though we didn't actually cover Throwing Copper, we did cover Secret Samadhi. We talked a lot about the making of Throwing Copper versus Secret Samadhi on that episode. I recommend it if you haven't heard it. And then he did A Boy Named Goo and some of the other albums for the Goo Goo Dolls. Mm -hmm. All of that before Rising Tide. His After Rising Tide credits include the Ataris, Millen Cullen, Paul Westerberg, Plain White Tees, and Taking Back Sunday's Where You Want to Be. Hmm. So he's got some good credits, a respectable resume there. He does. Now, we talked about the cover of Diary and how it's kind of an iconic cover. I love this cover. 
I think one thing that, in addition to making great music, they've also managed to have great packaging along the way. Yep. And this is no exception. I had this as a shirt in my freshman year of college. I also had a shirt with the image. So the cover is solid, kind of pale blue, and there's a cutout black and white photo of a bronze statue, which is called the Angel of Victory. And it's an angel holding a soldier from World War One. And it's supposed to be the angels lifting the soldier up to heaven at the moment of the soldier's death. It's really cool. There's this real look of compassion from the angel looking mm-hmm. at the soldier's dead face and raising its hand up high. Yeah. What's interesting about that is the statue in the photo, it sits in front of the waterfront station in Vancouver. It's one of three identical statues that was created by the sculptor Corday Leon McCarthy after he was commissioned to create the work by the Canadian Pacific Railway in 1921 to commemorate all of the Canadian soldiers lost in World War I. The other two, I believe, are indoors. This one is displayed outside, Mm -hmm. and the angel has its hand raised up. But on the other two statues, the angel is holding a halo or a wreath. Like a laurel? Yeah. And so this one, because it's outside, it's been broken. And so it's missing that. You can see that there's a little something in the angel's hand, but it's because it's been broken off. Huh. So that's a fun little bit of useless art history trivia for you go along with it. But yeah, they put that image of the angel and the soldier on all of their t-shirts and merch. And it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful statue. Big fan. Did I buy you your shirt from the show or did you get it separately? I ordered it on the interwebs. Okay. Because I know I got mine when I saw them in Austin. They played this venue, La Zona Rosa. That was July 19th, 2000 with No Knife. And I can't remember if you declined to go with me because you were already in Tulsa at that point or if you were just a giant baby and didn't like having fun. Uh, I think I was a giant baby who didn't like having fun. I can see you being like, oh, I want to go, but it's going to be late and I don't want to have to drive all the way back from Austin. That sounds very much like a high school Tom thing. Hmm, maybe. Seeing as we were graduated, you couldn't use your normal excuse of, I have a test in the morning, which is why you didn't go with me to see Hum or any number of other bands that played on a school night. I wasn't as big of a fan of Hum yet. True. That was one of those that took time to grow on me. You also used to like to say that Karen wouldn't let you go, but then I asked Karen and Karen was fine with it. That was not true. Karen was liar. We've already been over this. <laughs> That's the theme of this episode. And I think I'm going to put in the show notes reference to Tom's mom's lies every time I mention them. But that was only one of three times you saw them, right? Yes, that was the first that I saw them. They came through and they initially had some summer dates in support of Rising Tide. So like I said, Austin was the closest they came. And I can't remember if Jacob was also at the show, but there were a handful of other people. I know, I feel like Ramsey was there and some other people from our high school who were into the music scene that they ran in those crowds. Hung out with, I think, the drummer from the Glory Record. He was there. Got to talk with him a bit. Oh, nice. I think that was the first time I drove to Austin for a show, and it was all pre-GPS and internet on your phones, and so I wanted to give myself time to get there, and I ended up getting there early enough that I got parked right outside of the venue, and then I just had to hang out against the stage all night, and so I was right up against the stage for it, and there was a camera crew recording that night for a local Austin cable access show called Raw Time, and I was kind of on the left side facing the stage, and there was a cameraman to my left, and all night I was self 
self-conscious that if I was getting into the music that I was getting into his shot. And so I was trying to not do that. But I looked it up the other day and that entire concert is streaming on YouTube. They've put it up since. Oh, really? Yeah. And there's points where it's dark, but my fat head comes into frame. You know, it's bobbing stupidly. And I'd gotten information about the station and I had sent them 20 bucks to get a copy of the concert and they never sent it to me. (gasps) So those bastards owe me 20 bucks or a VHS copy of the performance. And it was a heck of a show. They absolutely killed it. They were super tight and they just went through and super high energy and it was just amazing. And then since it was the summer after senior year, we all moved away. We did. You moved to Tulsa. I moved to California and Sunny Day announced a second batch of dates that went through like September and October. And I had just started college in California. And so they announced the Sacramento show and my best friend was now in Tulsa. And it's not like he went to shows with me anyway. I was on the newspaper staff out there and there was this guy on staff who I knew he played guitar and was kind of into music, but I didn't really know anyone well. But I was like, hey, do you know Sunny Day Real Estate? And he's like, yeah. And I don't know how into them he was, but I was like, you want to go up to Sacramento and go to show with me? And he's like, sure, why not? And so that ended up being like the first time that me and my buddy Terrence hung out. And Terrence is the person who has replaced you as my best friend. (laughs) I don't think this is new news for you. No, no, no. Uh, Terrence is also the one who wrote and plays the guitar track that we use as our theme song. Thank you, Terrence. He's a great guitarist. Good dude. And again, that was one where I had never been to Sacramento before. And we got there super early and had a few hours to kill before doors even opened. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon. The venue was across the street from the Capitol building. And this is in a pre-9-11 world. Yeah. So we were able to walk into the California State House and just start wandering. And at one point we hit a velvet rope, which of course we stepped over and just kept exploring. And when somebody finally was like, hey, what are you kids doing? We're like, oh, sorry, we're looking for a restroom. We're on like the third floor at this point. Yeah. And he was like, do you guys want a quick tour? And we're like, yes. So he took us down to the main floor and showed us some back secret hallways that tours don't normally go on and some old building original construction stuff that wasn't open to the public and so by being where we weren't supposed to be we got a private tour of the cool stuff the kind of thing that doesn't happen unless you're planning an insurrection nowadays yeah like i said it was definitely a pre-9-11 world and so that's why we were able to get shown around rather than arrested and shot then we went and saw Sunny Day. They were playing at the Crest Theater. Who was that one with? Pete Yorn was the opener, and this was before Pete Yorn had released his debut album. I remember because we were both blown away by how good Pete Yorn was. And we're like, how have we never heard of this guy before? And then he put his album out, and we're like super excited and went and picked it up. But I swear that what he was doing before he put the album out was harder and a lot more rock. Huh. And don't get me wrong, I still love Pjorn, and I think his debut music for The Morning After is fantastic. But it really has more of like a Snow Patrol vibe than the Pearl Jam vibe. And that was really kind of what I felt like he was doing before that album dropped. Yeah, music for The Morning After is really a lot more melodic and chill. I still remember you told me to buy that album, and I did. Yeah. I've been thinking about it because you mentioned on Social D the story of somebody who he was like, hey, hold my beer. And maybe it was me. Maybe I forgot. There's plenty of stories that I forget about. I really remembered it being you because you're the one that told me to buy that album. And I think it was at the same time you told me to buy the album. You reminded me that that's I'm the thinking guy. If that happened, I don't think it was that he gave me his beer and went on stage. I think it was just like, hey, can you hold this? And he went to the restroom. OK, I think that was probably what it would have been because I don't think he would have just left his beer to go on stage and perform for 45 minutes. He would have taken his beer. My version's cooler. But like Karen, apparently I made that up. (laughs) 
Pete Yorn was the first album of mine that Christine borrowed. Nice. The fun thing about that show is I had seen them just a few months prior, and then I moved across the country and I get to see them again. And as tight and as good and as amazing that they were in Austin, nothing went right in Sacramento. (laughs) The show itself felt like watching a dress rehearsal, really, more than watching a band perform. It was something like they came out and on the very first song, opening chords, they hit it so hard, Jeremy broke some strings. Oh, And he kept breaking strings throughout the night. And there were a couple times he'd break some strings and he finally got to the point where he was frustrated enough where he'd take his guitar off and they would just stop. And the first couple of times it happened, the band would kind of jam while he would switch out. Like the guitar tech would bring his other guitar out. But at one point he broke some strings. The guitar tech came out. He goes to play and breaks more strings immediately. At that point, he just took the guitar off and just sat down on the stage, just like head in his hands. And the band just jammed for a few minutes. They were just like, we're feeling it. We're going to go. I think at that point he'd broken strings on all of his backups so he was waiting for a guitar to get restrung and a couple of times they'd get a couple minutes in and he'd break strings and they'd like okay we're gonna start this one over and there's one that they tried that a couple of times and kind of gave up and moved on and then came back to later in the set nothing for that show went right and since i had already seen them and had seen them be amazing it was a lot of fun to watch just <laughs> everything going wrong for them Yes, because you don't get to see that too much. I'm like, you see somebody break a string occasionally, but you don't see it happen like three times in a song. No. You see somebody maybe get frustrated, but when he just sat down, it's just such a change and kind of refreshing to see such a human response as opposed to the cool rock god celebrity veneer that people put on on stage. Right. And so that was a drastically different show from the Austin show, but so good. And they also switched up and played a handful of different songs in each set. There were songs that I didn't expect, and so I was like able to see different material. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Well, yeah, because usually when you see a band on the same tour... Especially touring a new album. Especially that close together, yeah, you expect the same set list. Yep. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. So, before settling on Sunny Day Real Estate as a band name, mm-hmm. they had a few other names. They were originally known as Empty Set. Okay. Then Chewbacca Kaboom. That's fun. That is really fun name. And then One Day I Stopped Breathing, which is a problematic... <laughs> you might want to see some doctors. Yeah, you might want to see some doctors if possible. But I just love the name Sunny Day Real Estate. It's... It's, it's a solid name, but One Day I Stopped Breathing definitely does have a thematic feel to it that seems more right and more in line with the music that the band makes. As much as Chewbacca Kaboom is so fun to say. <laughs> it really is. One Day I Stopped Breathing does seem like a move in the right direction for them. Yeah. Where did Sunny Day Real Estate come from, or how did they settle on that? It was just a random thought that popped into Mendel's head while listening to the Talking Head song, Nothing But Flowers. He started thinking about the way they viewed the world and that everything that could be a commodity was becoming a commodity. The lyrics made him ponder what could be sold as property. And it made him think that someday people would even sell a sunny day, that that would be something people could profit off of. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of the commercial of Sunny Day, or at least of Sunny Day real estate, Rising Tide is frequently considered to be their most commercial-sounding album. Yeah. As a result, it's incredibly divisive, which I've never really understood. 
I don't either because it still sounds quintessentially like Sunny Day. But we've got to remember this was what four year, five years after they released LP2, six years after Diary. Right. They've grown up as people and as a band. They've matured as musicians and human beings. And this honestly sounds to me like a natural progression of the music I would expect Sunny Day to play. Same. I know a lot of people didn't like this album when it came out. And a lot of people had beef with, if not just the album as a whole, there were different aspects of it. Like you just said, it's the natural progression of them becoming better musicians, which I think is anyone who is serious about playing music, they're going to get better over time. Yep. So becoming a better musician, I don't think that's anything that should ever be held against anyone. No, if they had sold out and they were playing pop punk or something at this point, if we had suddenly started hearing them playing Hit or Miss by Newfound Glory, I could see people being ticked, but it's not. Yeah, and going along with the improvement in them as musicians, there was also an improvement in the production quality. And for some reason, that irks people when bands are able to afford better gear and better studios to record in. That's another thing that I've never understood why it annoys people that, oh, the band sounds better on this album. They should. I don't think any band that's worthwhile sets out to be like, hey, I'm going to make an album where we sound stupid. <laughs> I would hope after five years, our podcast will sound more mature. Yeah. But going along with that production, I noticed that there was kind of a split in the reviews. Like half of them seemed like they blamed Lou for the change in production sound and for making the band sound different. You know how much I love Pitchfork? Oh, yeah. Pitchfork, in their review, they put... Giordorno dunks Sunny Day in a vat of liquid and covers them in chrome. Which is ridiculous. I mean, it's lucky for Sunday today that I generally think pitchfork reviews are idiots. <laughs> Look at Lou's body of work, right? We've already talked about what else he's done. Yeah. And if he single-handedly did this to the Sunny Day sound, why didn't he do it on any of the other albums that he produced? Right. I mean, most producers, like most musicians, have a wheelhouse that they work in. They have kind of a signature sound that they're able to do. And you can look at Lou's body of work and you can see how Goo Goo Dolls progressed and got better and sound better from A Boy Named Goo to Iris. Yeah. He did both of those. And there is an improvement there, but he doesn't dip them in liquid and cover them in chrome. No, no. I think Orlando Weekly did a better job with reviewing this album. Before you get to that, then I just also want to just point out that putting it all on Lou, aside from just being idiotic, it's also potentially just flat out insulting to the band. I mean, on this album... they have no say? Well, the band on this album have co-producer credit. They'd worked a lot and produced How It Feels to Be Something on themselves. This is their fourth studio album. You spend that much time, you get familiar with the process. Part of the reason that they're so much against the live album that Sub Pop put out is because Sub Pop wouldn't let them have any input on the mix or mastering of those tracks. Right. And so they were very much aware and hands-on with choosing how they sounded and making a specific sound. And so saying that it was all Lou's doing, it's insulting to the band. I think they wanted a, a rinse and repeat of Diary. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But at this point, you already got that with the Pink album. You did. Which, considering that the Pink album was phoned in, is incredible. <laughs> yeah. One of the other complaints a lot of people make is with Jeremy's vocal work. 
You mean the fact that I can understand him now? Right. The fact that his vocals don't sound like gibberish. Part of that is that, you know, they have better microphones so you can understand the words that he's saying as he's saying them. But then the other part of that is the fact that unlike the Pink album, he's not just singing gibberish lyrics. (laughs) They knew that that was an album that they were just doing to fulfill an obligation that they had made. And they didn't bother writing lyrics for a lot of the tracks. And when it came time later down the road, like for the reunion, for them to start playing old songs and trying to figure out those songs. There are songs that they didn't bring back because Jeremy had no idea what he was saying on the record. (laughs) But it's such a good album. It is, and it's so mind-boggling. This is the kind of album you can make when you're not trying. Why are you breaking up? Why can't you try? And so you had that, which was pretty much just a continuation of Diary. A lot of those tracks had started off as songs that they had started writing when they were doing their diary session. And then they broke up and they had some time apart and then they came back and then they made How It Feels to Be Something On, which is a drastically different sound that people were still willing to be on board with because it's such a good album. It's them still sounding like Sunny Day, but taking the ship in a different direction. And people were okay with it on that one. So for some reason, when this one kind of becomes a middle ground of going back to more of a rock sound, all of a sudden people decided that they were going to draw the line in the sand on this album. And it feels like you're a bit late in the game. You either accepted on the last one that they're going to grow and change and do what they want, or you're just going to be persnickety that they're not just doing diary for the fourth time. Yeah, but you weren't upset that they didn't do it the third time. So are you really upset? (laughs) I just realized what it was. What? When this came out, Weezer was kind of on their hiatus and they hadn't started putting out album after album after album. So the cool kids hadn't learned to turn on Weezer yet. So they had to turn on somebody. So they decided to turn on Sunny Day. Because let's face it, the primary OG Sunday Day Real Estate fan base is comprised of a generation that has made an art out of loving to hate the things that they love. I mean, we were the folks who first started liking everything ironically. We were too afraid to admit something was just that we enjoyed, so it had to be liked ironically, right? Whatever. I'm going to go shout out to Orlando Weekly for their July 6th, 2000, 4 a.m. posting about the rising tide. Ignore the drama, breakups, finding God, refusing to play in California for some reason. The only thing worth examining about Sunny Day Real Estate is the band's music, especially the rising tide. The group's fifth album, it's quite possibly the group's finest work to date, which says a lot considering that the band perfected the much maligned emo genre with its previous outings. The rising tide is both anthemic and bombastic while still managing to be mysterious and off kilter. In short, Sunny Day Real Estate has finally gotten in touch with its inner U2. Producer Lou DiGiorno has given the material (laughs) a polish that allows the listener to fully appreciate the band's intricate melodies, though some might dismiss singer Jeremy Eunuch's voice as too shrill or rush-like. Closer listens prove otherwise. With Rising Tide, Sunny Day Real Estate has made a near-classic album. I really miss the early 2000s and late 90s music reviews. That there, I think, is pretty much cookie cutter for all of the reviews. It is. It is. There are a handful that like that kind of goes back and forth, not being able to make up its mind whether it loves it or hates it. That one covers both, weirdly. But it brings up a couple of interesting points, one of which is what I refer to as the prog problem. Okay. That one actually did make the comparison of Jeremy's vocals to Rush. 
Uh, no. I can see a similarity in the high-pitchedness of Jeremy's voice, how people can draw a comparison to that of Getty Lee. No one is going to think that Nate Mendel is Neil Peart. <laughs> but Getty Lee likes to go high, so I can see that. But beyond any potential similarity to vocals, a lot of the other reviews liked to say it sounds like an arena rock album, and they like to say it sounds progish. Which, again, if you want to make the comparison to the vocals, that's one thing. But the album as a whole, lumping it into the prog cart, I don't get that. It doesn't sound like progressive rock at all to me. No. So, like, if you look up the definition of prog, it's along the lines of being a subgenre of rock that emphasizes ambitious composition, experimentation, concept-driven lyrics, and music virtuosity. And sure, most of those things can fit the rising tide because most of those things can fit pretty much every other rock album ever made. Mm -hmm. So then the main difference hinges on the virtuosity aspect. And Dan and Jeremy are fine guitar players, and on this album, they do make big sounds, but they never shred. They never come close to playing too many notes. There's not the showboating that you get from Prague. No, and their musical instruments are all conventional. There's no weird-sounding musical techniques that you'll hear in Prague rock. And honestly, aside from, what, Faces in Disguise at six minutes, they're all average-length songs. So many of the Prague rock songs drag on. Again, like you said, they're fine guitar players, but none of them are going to be able to showcase a mastery of their instruments to the level that a prog rock band would. Right. And the level of musicianship they show is more on point with the other comparison that the reviews all seem to make. And that's a comparison to U2. And nobody has ever claimed that U2 is a prog band. So it's one or the other. I don't think it can be both. But with the U2 comparison, the problem is it's kind of like the point that we touched on earlier about Sub Pop and looking back at this album from over two decades later. When all of these comparisons were made, U2 was a different band from who U2 is today. U2 was still a respectable band. They were still pretty much like the biggest band in the world, but they hadn't released All That You Can't Leave Behind, and they hadn't barraged us with all of those mediocre singles. And this was years before Apple force-fed U2 to all of your devices, whether you wanted it or not. And so making a U2 comparison wasn't the potential slight that it could be taken as today. No, I don't think it was a slight. I don't think anybody meant it insultingly. But I will say U2 is so much more, even at this time, they're so much more focused on political and social issues. They do have some stuff that's just really arena rock, right? Well, they hadn't fully gotten arena rock at this point because it was all that you can't leave behind that really did that. At this point, their last album was pop. You don't think pop had an arena sound? They'd gone off and they had made some bigger records. Octung Baby was a movement in their sound to a bigger, more commercial, bolder sound. Zeropa was just drastic change for them. But I think Pop was them trying to like get back in touch with the Joshua Tree sound. And sure, the Joshua Tree sound was as big of a sound as U2 could make at the time. But it's also like all of those I thought were pretty phenomenal albums. And most musicians at the time thought they were pretty phenomenal albums. And nobody had a problem with trying to be U2. But All That You Can't Leave Behind was the one that really went. Because I mean, that was the one that they shot a video for in the Astrodome. Right. That one was what? Stuck in a moment or something. Freshman year of college. 
2000, 2001, right? And sure, I caught the Pop Mart tour, and that was actually in the Astrodome, and they had a giant stage and an elaborate production. And so U2 was an arena band, but I don't think that they were making... Okay, but U2 could go play Pop in an arena. Sunny Day could not go play The Rising Tide in an arena. But that's more to do with ticket sales than the ambition of the music itself. Uh, I don't know. I see a huge difference there. Now, for as much as I love to hate Pitchfork, possibly the one thing that Pitchfork has gotten right was a description they made of Sunny Day. They described... Sunday Day Real Estate admired Fugazi's ethics, but dreamed of being Led Zeppelin and U2. Bands that aspired for total transcendence. I think that's the only description Pitchfork has ever made of anything that isn't stupid. In the 2006 Punk News Review, they are quoted, It's a spiritually passionate record in the vein of bands such as Live or U2. Like, thematically and the emotion behind the music that they're playing is where the comparison to U2 is. Because even though they were selling out stadiums, I think Bono at that time was still trying to be very earnest and very sincere as a lyricist, as a, you know, as a frontman. And I think that's how you could also describe Jeremy, is trying to be earnest and sincere with his songs. And I think that sentimentality that Jeremy brings to Sunny Day is where they're drawing the comparisons more than the actual tonality or music or volume or any of those other things. There's the Spin 2000 review that says, Jeremy Enoch's heartfelt desperation was backed by the bracing discord-reared heaviness of the rest of the band to stunning effect. But for all their post-hardcore moves, Sunny Day's music had an epic quality, an ambitious U2-like need for settling all the scores that could be settled within the confines of a pop song. There's plenty more U2 comparisons from different articles, but Dan, in an interview that he did in 2000 with Lollipop Magazine, he kind of touches on it. He says, It's hard not to be influenced by contemporaries who you look up to. Maybe I was trying to be the edge. Sunday Day Real Estate is definitely rock, but in a class of itself. It's not heavy metal. It's not Backstreet Boys either. I guess we can be similar to U2 or R.E.M. in that we just want to be an amazing rock band. You can try to make the comparisons, but at the end of the day, The Rising Tide is still a Sunday Day Real Estate record. Yep. My favorite quote that I came across about the album was from the 2000 Spin Review, where it kind of addresses this issue. It says, anyone familiar enough with Sunday Day's back catalog will spend the first moments of the album dragging their jaw around the room as the lead-off track, Killed by an Angel, is launched on the stern back of a type A cockrock riff straight out of the 70s. Not that the music is so far removed from Diary, but it's like the guitars have had their teeth fixed and bleached, like an extremely loud Colgate commercial. <laughs> I can get behind that. That's funny. Yeah. And speaking of track one, Killed by an Angel. Yeah, we open up with Killed by an Angel, which is a song that I absolutely love. And I think it does a great job of setting the tone for the entire album. Mm -hmm. It starts out with this haunting guitar intro that builds this. It's just this heavy thing. It's just. Yeah. It's just hard and heavy and it's fantastic. It sucks me in immediately, and by the time the rhythm section pops in, I'm I'm sold already, right? Yeah. Just right off the bat, you build the solid wall of rock. You do. And I'm usually not drawn to a bass line, mm -hmm. but the way the guitar and bass play off of each other in this song is musical perfection. Okay. I won't argue that. I love it. And it's all complemented with Jeremy's vocals. 
And okay, I can see why some people want to complain about Jeremy sounding different on the album, and specifically on this one, he does. He goes falsetto. He's a lot more high pitched, a lot more falsetto, but it's equally dramatic as the guitars. And the highness of his voice is an interesting contrast with the bass and the guitars. Absolutely. His voice adds an additional layer of depth to this song. Yes. The whole song is all about this emotional turmoil and vulnerability. The title itself, Killed by an Angel, something that we look at like guardian angels and as a society we see them as pure and holy and we're talking about the loss of innocence but the lyrics throughout it are all about betrayal. Yeah, initially it feels very pessimistic and jaded which is on point with being a quintessential 90s band but when considering the amount of drama that's packed into the band's history, their personal relationships, their tensions, their tensions with their previous label there's the potential for this to be very much autobiographical hidden behind metaphor you can read between the lines of it and kind of be like okay they're saying just buckle up this is going to be a bumpy ride yeah absolutely it slaps (laughs) i do feel like we should not try to figure out what the song means when we have the great resources of (laughs) songmeanings.com available at our disposal That's good, because a lot of these lyrics, I have no idea what they're supposed to mean. Well, this is a really great song, and according to Super Sapien, I'm assuming it's about hallucinogens. He's talking about breaking your day for pay and ration, hide, 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 as in hiding from the daily pains of using hallucinogenic drugs. Other things like lost inside amazing colors, it comes in a bottle and hole in your brain are obvious references to being high. I like the line, it's cold when you remove the nails, referring to withdrawal. Great song. Huh. Okay, okay, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, now I've fulfilled my (laughs) obligation for my sponsorship, and we'll go through this album one song at a time, which brings us to song two, which is one. Yes, this is the only track from the album that was released as a single. It was released in late May of 2000. This one starts, it starts off building another wall out of rock. The guitars feel a bit more familiar. It's like a part that could have been written for any of the prior albums. Yep. And in keeping with tradition of writing sweeping songs that turn from loud to soft to sad and back again on a dime, bands rocking out and then they just drop out mid-verse at 42 seconds. And we get a few lines of Jeremy accompanying by a single acoustic guitar before the band comes back in with a crescendo that crashes with the acoustic guitar swapping back to electric. And this process is repeated. It's just really cool how they layer the instruments to create that rich sonic texture that we feel. Yeah, there's a good layering and there's a good juxtaposition from the rock to the quiet, softer parts with the acoustic, the breaks. But just kind of as they repeat the process a couple times and you think you're used to where they're going with Uh it, then they mix up the format instead of dropping out. Then they double down and the electric guitars start a soaring solo, which they like to do throughout this album. Yep, the structure does add a lot of depth. So we move through this like quiet intro perspective passage then we get this really loud like you said crescendo the ebbs and the Mm -hmm. flows of the energy really mirror the journey that the song is taking us on it's creating this i don't know this this it's really bringing us as listeners into the experience that we're going through Mm -hmm. in a unique way which is why this may or may not be one of my top three i guess we'll have to wait until the end to find out we will i don't have a good segue for, for rain song i'm sorry Okay, the third track is a track called Rain Song. And Rain Song is kind of a mellow break from the rock. 
starts with a nice light finger-picked acoustic guitar part, which could possibly even be described as a trickling pitter-patter. Oh, I like that. The guitar gets doubled by a second guitar, and then instead of drums, the guitars are accompanied by a string arrangement of violins, violas, and cellos. This is the one track on the album where we don't hear drums. This has a lot more of the classic melodic emo sound that we hear in earlier Sunny Day. Yep. Enix vocals seem more subdued and less strained than on the first couple of tracks, mm-hmm. but he's singing with a rhythmic delivery that at times rushes words together in a charming garbled mess that feels like the old gibberish lyrics delivered on prior albums. <laughs> So, you know, they're still delivering the goods as much as people don't want to acknowledge it. It's another good song. It's not one that will uh, disappear from my playlists anytime soon. Nice. Track four, Disappear. Again, with the YouTube comparisons, Uh. one review stated Disappear starts off with a driving rhythm section and evolves into an emotionally charged rocker, similar to that of Unforgettable Fire era U2. So again, it's a different U2 than what we think about when we think U2 nowadays. So I think at the time it was meant to be high praise. Disappear opens with an almost tribal drum beat, and when the guitar melody enters, the music builds into a vibe that has a very similar sound and feel to the jam that their mm-hmm. song The Prophet gets into on the previous album, How It Feels to Be Something On. Of course, this being The Rising Tide, it's bigger and bolder and more epic. I like that description, Mark. Thank you. I like that a lot. But of course, this one, it starts out jamming hard rather than waiting nearly three and a half minutes to get there. Yep. And with that kind of shift in how they're approaching some of the songs on this album, there's a respectable amount of confidence on display with making those kinds of choices. And I think that maybe that's the best word to describe where the band is at on this album. And that's confident. They're confident with the music that they're making. They're confident with knowing what their sound is, who they are, and whatnot. So funny thing about that, I was reading an interview with Dan Horner where he was talking about his daughter's a teenager and she came up to him recently and his daughter says, it sounds like you guys copied this band called Jimmy World. And he said, I had to explain, well, they're great and maybe we were a little influenced by them, but most of our stuff came out before. (laughs) We always wanted to try and make something timeless. We were very aware of creating something that didn't sound exactly like anybody else. And now, of course, it sounds like everybody else. But I love the fact that to this person discovering 90s music, oh, you guys really ripped <laughs> off Jimmy World when Jimmy World credits Sunny Day Real Estate as a big influence for them. Oh, kids. Kids. They're so, they're just so full of snibe. <laughs> so what is snibe? Uh, it's a song. <laughs> And it does not have a standard definition. It is the fifth song on the album. And in my research, I discovered that there is a company called Snibe. What do they do? I'm not entirely certain. It seemed like one of those generic companies that uses big words to describe what they do without describing what they do. Oh, I like that. So they've got a marketing website. They remind me a lot of Viridian Dynamics, which was the company from Better (laughs) Better Off Off Dead. Dead? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. This song does not start out with the guitars, right? No, this one starts with a simple bass line. That's perfect because I am all about that bass. And it's super beefy and it feels as ready to rock as the electric guitars have been. And the bass proves to be the main backbone of this track. The vocals on the verse are a bit more on the subdued side. But on the chorus, Jeremy both lets loose and also provides harmonies to great effect. Yep. 
And then as the track really is hitting its stride around 2.20, we get a little interlude of a different simple bass line and a light piano part and some incredibly garbled robot speech that reminds me of the Mother Leopard intro into the At The Drive-In song Enfilade from their album Relationship of Command. And when they come out of that, it's, as you said, Sunny Day slaps <laughs> about as hard as they slap on any other song. Uh, they do. The song is a banger. I will say I understood more in that robot speech than some of the stuff previously done by Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you understand any of it? No, not at all. I'm sure it has some meaning somewhere. The rest of the vocals, you can mostly understand what he's saying, but it's a great vocal performance. Absolutely. Everything about it, the bass line, how he sings, what he sings, where he goes vocally, the parts where it is that robot voice. It's all just a very cool track. It is. It really stands in juxtaposition to the ocean. Yes. Because like you said, you said it was a banger. It slaps. We flip to song six, which is the ocean. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is an acoustic song. Yeah. Now, this one, while it was not released as a proper single, on April 4th of 2000, when the album was announced, they also released the demo version of this song. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it is another acoustic-driven track. And this one, they do a great job of layering in the texture at play from the start with the drums and the bass and the mellotron. They're all working together to give the melody a strong, rhythmic, rolling quality that the vocal performance matches. And everything builds and it swells and it fades and it comes and goes in waves, which thematically seems appropriate for a song called The Ocean. If you listen closely, you can hear The Ocean. Anyway. So song number seven is Fool in the Photograph. And I love this song and how it's a li- it's musically different from other stuff they do because they bring in a distinctive near to Middle Eastern vibe to this. Oh, you, you wrote it here. You said the ocean rolls to an end and the band jumps back into the rock and settles into the groove with a distinct Middle Eastern influence. And that caught me off guard. I didn't remember that because I haven't listened to this album in its entirety until a couple of weeks ago. And I took a little pause because it sounded unique. It still sounded like Sunny Day, but it was a different sound than their other stuff. Right. They've had little bits where it's kind of been teased, the influence of music from other parts of the world. And yeah. in a few of the other previous songs, it's something that they introduced, I think, on how it feels. But there's definitely that Middle Eastern influence on in both the melody and the drum rhythms that are at work here. And the sitar. Yes, Dan, in addition to his guitar work, does play the sitar. Even Jeremy's vocal flourishes at times go into just full-blown chanting. Yeah. Although, like much of the rest of the album, I have no idea what the meaning behind the lyrics is supposed to be, or if there even is supposed to be any meaning behind them. There obviously is. Probably. And since you asked, I'm going to go to Matthew 15, who said it's probably about Jesus and how Jeremy Eunuch wants to join him in heaven. Wasting time, you tell the story, still made your mind, you're chasing the moon, making scars among the glory. That's obviously him wanting to be with Jesus. Not my opinion. That's that's random thing that I copied from songmeanings.com. Is the title calling Jesus the fool or the photograph? I don't know. Or is it Eunuch looking at a photograph of himself? I don't think Enoch. Eunuch at this point in his life... Enoch. Enoch. I'm sorry, Enoch, Enoch, Enoch. I keep thinking... Never mind. I don't think Enoch, who is probably not a eunuch, I don't think Enoch <laughs> would call Jesus a fool, especially at this point in his life. <laughs> sorry. That just reminded me of a hot take I came up with while looking at photographs of the band. Maybe I'm crazy on this, but I think that Jeremy looks a lot like Phil Collins, but with bushier eyebrows. Hold on. Enoch. Oh, 
Yes, he does. Especially now, he looks like a young Phil Collins. It made me happy. Did it put a tear in your heart? No. That would probably be sad, huh? It would. Instead, it filled my heart with joy. But track eight, tearing in my heart. This intro creeps me out. Why? I don't know, just a woman. Here's some kids. You want to hear some kids? So track eight, tearing in my heart, it starts off with the sound of footsteps and then a female voice saying, here's some kids. You want to hear some kids? Listen. And then there's children speaking in French. That's creepy. <laughs> I love how you think it's creepy because the voice, for some reason, always reminds me of Margot Kidder, who played Lois Lane in the Christopher Superman? Reeves Superman. And then Margot went, Kidder? Yeah. And then went crazy. And Family Guy has the wonderful bit about Margot Kidder coming to dinner. <laughs> There's something about the quality of the voice that always reminds me of that. It's actually a clip of William Goldsmith's sister. While she was on a trip to Paris, she was walking around Paris recording random noises as potential samples for her brother. You think it's weird that she's like, here's some kids. You want to hear some kids? (laughs) But she's just setting up what the clip is. Right, but I didn't know that for years when I heard this song. Yeah, I didn't know this until about a week and a half ago. I didn't know this until I read your notes earlier, and I thought, huh, okay, that makes sense. So his sister died. I found a handful of comments that made reference to the fact that it was his sister who had recorded this. And I found one comment out of all of those that said that his sister had passed away prior to this, which is why they put it on the record as kind of a tribute to her. One random quote on a YouTube video isn't exactly confirmed fact, but seeing as Sunny Day has never used a sample or done any kind of intro like this anywhere else on any of their albums, I can see how maybe it holds water. Yeah. I looked up a handful of interviews with William Goldsmith and again, the sister death thing. It's not something that I was able to corroborate, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. I don't really know why we need to worry about what's true or not in our podcast. I did a whole episode of my other podcast where I kept telling fake facts. If you're just making up random facts about Tim Allen's life, most people will probably believe it by now. (laughs) Ever since he got arrested for stealing that goat by riding it out of the mall, people will believe anything. (laughs) Ironically dresses the Easter bunny. (laughs) So, tearing in my heart. Oh, the title also gives reason to believe it may be a tribute to his sister. If that's all true, it kind of feels a bit on the nose with this one. It does. For this album, it's a much softer, much slower. It's got a nice ballad-ish feel to it. It's got quiet guitars. It has restrained drums and some lovely string sounding parts that, according to the production notes, are really Jeremy on a synthesizer, which means that Jeremy pretty much did everything himself on this track because he also plays guitar and bass bass and sings and keyboards and he even laid down the drums on this one instead of goldsmith huh you think that goldsmith would maybe want to play on the song that was dedicated to his sister but then again it's also possible that maybe it was just too close to home or as the lyrics say when the world falls apart it's almost too hard Mm. The lyrics on this one are probably the most straightforward as we get of any of the lyrics on this album. It is, and it's a, it's a hard song. Not in the sense of how hard and heavy and rock the rest of the album is. Just thematically, it's more emotionally, it's deep. 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 So deep. So deep and full of drama. The kind you could get on an after-school special on your television This is classic. Track nine. It's called Television. I think if the entire album had sounded like this, the naysayers would have had to find something else to be naysayers about. I don't know about that. Really? As a quick aside, this is the one track on the album where Dan plays bass instead of Jeremy. 
this one, it starts off with a bunch of random electronic noises, and it feels kind of like the intro to Mr. Roboto, but with a modern twist and modern fuzz. It's like a grungy Mr. Roboto, which in itself is ironic considering all the talk about Rising Tide being their more prog album. Mm-hmm. A few of those reviews that talked about it being prog even made the comparison to Sticks by name. One specifically went so far after doing so as saying the Rising Tide is a slightly more commercial offering than its predecessors. But don't fret, there's no Mr. Roboto in sight. <laughs> so the fact that this starts with an intro that sounds like they're doing their own Mr. Roboto intro, it's almost like the band knew where the press was going to go and what stupid connections they were going to try to make. It's kind of like a musical Easter egg that they put in here to mess with us. I love it. But I agree that musically, this one might be the closest of them all to sounding like old school Sunny Day. It's got full guitars, but they don't have that arena rock sonic heft to them. And one thing that I haven't touched on yet is just the fact that people wanting to complain about Jeremy's vocals on this album. I think with the way that he sings, just the fact that he's gotten older, voices change. And so getting older and singing in the high range that he does, the changing in his voice is going to be super noticeable. I mean, Billy Corgan doesn't sound like he did on Gish or Siamese Dream. Not at all. Most vocalists, if you listen to like their first album and if they stick around for a while, you listen to them 5, 10, 20 years down the road, vocals change. Yep. And so if Jeremy's older vocal quality didn't give it away and you just heard this mixed with the rest of their catalog, you might not know where it fit in the Sunday Day timeline. Yeah. And in that vein, if we move on from there to track 10, Faces in Disguise, Faces in Disguise has a soft rhythmic quality to the guitar melody, and it has a hushed vocal approach. It has a rich underlaying current of orchestral strings, and it sounds very much like it's just something left over from how it feels. Yes, I like that description. It's just Sunny Day sounding like Sunny Day. Yep. And on this one, at first glance, the lyrics, they seem kind of almost straightforward about how we wear masks in relationships or something along those lines. Something equally deep. (laughs) But like some of the other songs in this album that don't seem like gibberish, this could also potentially be kind of autobiographical about the whole music process of where the band was at and how it operated with all its dysfunctions. But really, your guess is as good as mine. It's such a good song. And I like where it's positioned, and I like what it sets us up for to wrap up with the title track. Yes. Track 11, the final track on the album, is the title track, The Rising Tide. And it closes out the album with a mid-tempo track that, while it isn't the forceful in-your-face rock from earlier in the album, it still manages some guitar and vocal work that would best be described with adjectives like sweeping and soaring and grandiose. Yeah. And it plays the album out with just as much ambition as has been on display every other step of the way on this musical journey. That's what I like. It ends on the same note it begins on, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. A lot of times by the time you get to the end of an album, it's lost some of its gusto, but this one ends just as high. I think the best summary that I came across for all of it was in that same spin review from 2000 that we started this whole play-by-play process with. It says, It's just another ballsy leap into the unknown, or previously known, for a band with some of the most devoted fans in the country. Many were prepared to go along with some of the group's difficult maneuvering on the last album. Whether they are willing to pump their fists to the glorious powers of the god of the Marshall Stack remains to be seen. (laughs) 
Stereo Gum, in their 20th anniversary, they also kind of answer that question. They said, I don't hold the rising tide accountable for what it isn't, but admire it for what it actually is. An admirable attempt to be the exact thing it was so snidely accused of being in 2000. A big record of big riffs and big strings. If they never fully fulfilled that destiny, they still end up being the only sunny day real estate. I like it. Yeah. And to me, that's the most important point at play with this record in relation to the Sunny Day legacy. Because if it's not your favorite Sunny Day album in the catalog, so what? It doesn't have to be. It sounds like a Sunny Day album, and for a band that was forever existing on a razor's edge, the fact that we have it at all is no small miracle. Yeah. And more Sunny Day is always better than less. So... The thing I like about the era we live in now with streaming music, Mm -hmm. I don't have to always pick my favorite album. I can just create a playlist, and it's all just there. In those opening stages of the review process, I came into it a couple weeks ago feeling like I did with Showbiz, knowing that I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it on occasion. Yeah. But the more that I've made myself listen to it, the more that I've been finding that I actually enjoy it more and more. I can say I agree wholeheartedly. I did not give this album the respect it's due before diving in over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I like the songs on it. I always did. I didn't dislike the album, but I think I love it. Absolutely. It's one where I always knew I liked it. I always thought it was fine, but it was never my go-to Sunny Day album. No. Historically, I listened to it probably as much as I do the Pink album, and every time I listen to the Pink album, I always think, I need to listen to this album more. (laughs) But the majority of the time where I want to listen to Sunny Day, I'll go with Diary or How It Feels. Right. And I feel like that's what most people probably do. In in the following months to Sunny Days, putting this out and touring, they did what Sunny Day does best, and that's break up. (laughs) But despite that, they've all continued to make music. They've been in other bands. They've even been in bands with each other. Jeremy's put out a handful of solo albums, and they also had a project called The Fire Theft, which was Jeremy, William, and Nate. While Rising Tide does feel like a Sunny Day album, the production quality can be a little jarring to put Rising Tide next to Diary. But if you put Rising Tide next to tracks from Jeremy's solo World Waits and you put them next to the Fire Theft, it's all on the same level. And so the one other thing that the Rising Tide did was to set up the broad step forward for Jeremy and the rest of the musicians as maturing musicians moving forward and creating their larger body of work. That's fair. I like Jeremy's solo stuff. Not to say that they haven't occasionally done the other thing that Sunny Day does well, which is get back together temporarily. They did do a tour in 2009, and I was lucky enough to catch that tour in San Francisco at the Fillmore. Oh, nice. They played October 13th, 2009 with the Jealous Sound opening up. And Nate also was playing bass for the Jealous Sound on that tour. That was an incredible show, Jealous Sound. They're one of my favorites. Everything that Blair does, Knapsack, Jealous Sound, Racket Club, they're all incredible. They are. He's fantastic, and I've seen them five or six times. But they opened up for Sunny Day, and I was like, I've got to go to the show. And of course it's sold out. And the Fillmore being the incredible venue that it is, one thing that they do sometimes when a show sells out is they will print up posters and they will give them at the door to everybody as a thank you for selling the show out. So I have this beautiful poster from that show. 
Sunny Day played a brand new song that they had written prior to that tour, and they just referred to it as Tin. And on the tour, they talked about how they were working on material for a new album, which, of course, by the end of the tour, the album never came because they just promptly broke up again, which is what they do. And Tin never got recorded as a single or anything. It never saw the light of day beyond any of the concert footage on YouTube. Then in 2014, they decided to surprise everybody for Record Store Day and put out a split 7-inch with a new track called Lipton Witch, which is the only time I have ever bothered with Record Store Day. Record Store Day, in my opinion, is overrated. It's not worth standing in line to get stuff that really, it's like, if there's a demand for it, just put it out. Yeah. Or put it out streaming. Lipton Witch isn't even on Spotify. And I don't know if that's just because the band doesn't care enough to put it up, or if it's because it was an arrangement they had to make the 7-inch be that more valuable. I don't know. I thought it was a fine song. It didn't redefine Sunny Day to me. It didn't change my world, and I don't think it was worth the Record Store Day price tag. Then again, like Mike Ness, I enjoy being a crotchety old man. We all do. We're all there now. But on the topic of new Sunny Day singles... Yeah, I was shocked. So we're getting ready to record today, and I get a notification on my phone from Apple Music that, hey, new Sunny Day dropped. And I'm going to go through our text this morning, Mark. Yes, please do. Driving Ellie to school this morning, and I was still sleeping. And I texted Mark, and I'm like, new Sunny Day dropped. And Mark just replied, do what now? And so I copied a screenshot, and it was, I didn't understand. It says, uh, Mir Muala single by Sunny Day Real Estate is available ad. Mark said, feel free to add to tonight's talking points. But if you click the link to listen, I click and listen, and my response is, what the hell? Stupid Apple Music. Uh, It's a Thai group or something. It's a common thing that happens with streaming music these days. People have similar names, and they'll submit it to be added to the streaming platforms, and it'll get submitted to another band of the same name. It's a weird process. And there's other bands that I've come across, like bands like Hum. There's a Thai band or Vietnamese or something who releases music under the name of Hum. And I don't know if it's just because that's what the band names translate into in English, and so that's where it doubles up. Sunny Day Real Estate, though, like Hum, get it. Sparta, get it. Sunny Day Real Estate? I'm wondering if maybe somebody, when entering it, reversed the performer's name with the track name on that one. But it's interesting because, like I said, I run into this issue with Hum a lot. And Hum, a couple years ago, did actually put out a brand new album. And they didn't announce it. It was just a surprise. Hey, this is out now. And at first, I was very skeptical of it because of this. Yeah. But when you sent me that leak this morning, my first thought was, I follow Sunny Day and I haven't heard them say anything about it. So it's possible because every time they've gotten back and toured, they've written a new song and they've talked about doing more music, but they haven't yet. So maybe this time they finally did. But no, they didn't. (laughs) It was a wonderful tease. Yeah, it's really frustrating. You think the platforms want to do something to stop this? Because Well, honestly, it's in the platform's best interest because the confusion generates more plays than it would get otherwise. And the platforms are the only one that's making money off of how much something plays. The artists aren't making anything. Yeah. They know it doesn't affect any of the bands in any way. They're still making money, so they don't care. Apparently, the same thing happened to Basement and Mineral recently. And they said it was an error on Spotify's part, but this is Spotify and Apple Music. So I have to think it's got to be something else. Well, when you submit music to be added to the streaming platforms, you usually go through a third party. Um, We use DistroKid. We've used CD Baby and a couple of others. But DistroKid is just what we prefer at this point. And we submit it to this third party platform. We give them artist name, album, and track titles, and then upload music and art files. 
and then they are connected to all the platforms. So we're not directly sending it to Spotify or to Apple Music. That's usually where the confusion is. And I've sent a dozen emails when Columbia finally got a band and wanted to put out Columbia Jones and the Harpoons. Yeah. I still have been unsuccessful in trying to get the Columbia Jones and the Harpoons listed on the Columbia Jones music profile in addition to the separate band page because every time I'm like, hey, it's Columbia Jones, it should be on the Columbia Jones profile, but there should also be Columbia Jones and the Harpoons. They want to be like, oh, so there's two entities. There's Columbia Jones and there's the Harpoons. It's like, no, it's Columbia Jones and the Harpoons and Columbia Jones. And for whatever reason, that confuses them. That doesn't feel like an abnormal use case, right? There's plenty of bands that do that. Huey Lewis and the News. Love Huey Lewis. Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. There's plenty of musicians who have done this that they've managed to figure it out on, but for whatever reason, even if I try to give these examples, I'll get something back from them that are like, okay, well, try submitting it like this as the formatting, and I do that, and it never works. It's frustrating. Hmm. That sounds frustrating. Yeah. All right. So I got to know top three. You are ready to go. Do you want to start tonight? Uh, I actually come prepared. Excellent. As shocking as this may be to anyone and everyone here. It's taken what? Seven episodes for us to get here? You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I am proud of you. You know, Mark, that's all I go for. Words like that that I never hear from Karen that make me happy that we do this podcast together, Mark. <laughs> of course, like Karen, I'm probably just lying to you. Oh. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to come in with number three as Faces in Disguise. Okay. Number two is one. Okay. And my favorite is Killed by an Angel. Okay. That is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Saturday songs right now. And it could be because I've listened to it far more than I've listened to any other of their songs. Okay, so what are yours? Last Thursday, I had finished the majority of my notes on this and I put a list together. And then I was going through some stuff last night, just kind of fine tuning the notes, adding a couple extra little bits of commentary. And I realized that I needed to change my number three. Oh, so what was number three? So last week I was feeling that Rain Song was number three. Okay. And then in the last 36 hours, I decided that I had to bump that for Faces in Disguise. Hey! However, unlike last episode, we're not going to match up all three. Okay. Number two for me is Killed by an Angel. Okay. And number one for me is Snibe. Okay. I just love that robot voice. So those are my top three picks. I would love to hear what both of our listeners pick as their top three picks. Yes. But speaking of our top picks and playlists and all of that, since we've been up and running for a while now, something that we've been planning to do from the start, we just had to wait till we got enough episodes in to make it worthwhile, is we have a official once every two weeks playlist that we've put together that's featuring our top picks from each episode. So if you want to listen to the music that we've been liking from each episode, go check that out. Give that a follow. We are also on Spotify, Apple Music, all the platforms, anywhere you listen. And if you'd like to, you could be one of our first reviews and let people know what you think about us. Every review helps more people find us so that they can waste their lives listening to us ramble. Hooray! What's next week, Mark? Clumsy by Our Lady Peace. I just did a quick search for Our Lady Peace and the third photo that comes up is a photo of live. For Our Lady Peace? The headline is, best Our Lady Peace songs of all time, top 10 tracks. But it's a picture of live. <laughs> <laughs> like... Oh, internets. Oh, that's funny. 
Join us next week as we take a look at the 1997 Our Lady Peace album, Clumsy. I'm pretty excited about it. Okay. Bye, Thomas. Bye, Mark. Once every two weeks, it's a production of Borough Baracho Records and the Geek Lounge.